This EHIV Review Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. In the old paradigm of treatment, since our drugs weren't as good, there was a lot more education up front, and we also needed a number of baseline labs before it was really safe to start. But because the medications have gotten much better and easier to tolerate and a little bit harder to develop resistance to, some of those initial concerns are mitigated, and we can go ahead and start on the same day we meet the patient. Rapid ART benefits and clinical considerations. Welcome to EHIV Review. Initiating antiretroviral therapy at the time of HIV diagnosis or as soon as possible thereafter. It's called rapid ART and it's likely to become the new paradigm for entering patients into the HIV care continuum. But who's recommending rapid ART? Which patients might be good candidates and which ones won't? What's the recommended drug regimen? How can rapid ART benefit the vulnerable and underserved populations? That's what we're here to talk about today. Our guest is Dr. Jonathan Colasanti. He's an associate professor of medicine at Emory University in Atlanta and medical director of the Grady Infectious Disease Program at Ponce de Leon Center. For Dr. Colasanti's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org and select the Volume 7, Issue 2 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Colasanti, thank you for joining us today. Sure, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to communicate about this topic, so let's start in with our first learning objective. Explain when and how to initiate rapid ART. So take us to the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Colasanti, with a patient scenario. Sure, Bob. This is a 27-year-old young man who comes into the clinic today with a new diagnosis of HIV and syphilis. He's asymptomatic but reports some challenges coping with his new diagnosis and is open to starting medications. A patient with a new diagnosis of HIV. Assuming you want to consider initiating antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible, how would you approach this patient? So I approach this patient like I approach most of my patients. First thing I ask myself is how would myself or my family want to be cared for? And I try to take that approach with kind of the whole care process for that individual. I want to create the right environment. First of all, right, I want to acknowledge that this individual is newly diagnosed and he's already expressed some challenges coping. So I want to give him some space to express his concerns around that. I want to provide some basic HIV education. Some of his challenges coping may be because there's a lack of education there and it just doesn't understand what to expect. And then I certainly want to review all of the benefits of antiretroviral therapy with him, both in the context of his individual health, as well as the context of keeping the entire community healthy. Then I go into a general history and physical with the patient, like I would with anybody and getting some initial labs that we would usually get. And then typically want to be able to offer them antiretroviral therapy by the end of that discussion after we've talked about the risks and benefits of antiretroviral therapy. That's a lot to do on an initial visit. How long would you expect this visit to be? And how do you triage the history and the physical within that time frame? That's a great question, Bob. And that's kind of where the magic happens. And in our clinic, new visits are 60 minutes. I know this varies greatly across the country. And I think also varies depending on the patient population one is working with. I know clinics that might have as short as 20 to 30 minutes if it's a patient population that is expecting their diagnosis and and might be in a better place in terms of coping, and there's not as much of an emotional component to it. But in general, it's going to be a 30 to 60 minute visit. 
And I think first and foremost, you have to address that emotional component and give the patient space to express themselves and for you to initiate that relationship and that safe space that a patient is going to have to come back to the clinic. You ask a great question in terms of triaging the history and physical. This young man, he's 27 years old. Oftentimes, these folks don't have a tremendous amount of other health issues, and we can hone in on that HIV. And so the main parts of the history and physical that we tend to focus on are the parts that may have put a patient at risk for acquiring HIV. And that has to do with the social determinants of health and the circumstances around where the patient was living, as well as kind of the more traditional social parts of the history, like substance use and sexual practices and travel history and things like that. So in general, a relatively truncated history and physical. I do always spend a moment to take a thorough review of systems to make sure that we're not missing anything, namely symptoms that might point us towards a diagnosis of tuberculosis or something like cryptococcal meningitis, because those are two clinical entities where we might have a moment of pause before we start antiretroviral therapy. So as long as we can put to rest certain symptoms that may trigger red flags in our mind, the medical piece often doesn't take that long. I want to spend a little bit of time giving the patient some basic pathophysiology and the life cycle around HIV and why it's important to be adherent to this therapy. But at the same time, I want to give them education around antiretroviral therapy that matches the science with our current antiretroviral therapy. I'm, I'm not sure I'm following you. What I mean by that is not that I give a patient necessarily a free pass to miss doses, but I want the patient to be educated and that if there's an occasional misdose, that they don't start to beat themselves up. I meet patients that have undue anxiety around a single misdose a month. And so I like to set that frame and kind of lay the foundation for harm reduction. Perfection is certainly the goal, but it's really hard to achieve. If we can get darn close, you're going to do very well. And then I also want to connect that patient to any support services that they may need that we identified in that social history. And then finally, just close the loop and let the patient know how they can get back in touch with us and that we're going to reach back out to them very shortly with some of those lab values and to check in and make sure their therapy is going okay. What we have done with rapid antiretroviral therapy is often truncated the process of getting a patient into care and some of the education they receive. So I do think it's important during that first visit to at least take the time to provide some basic education. What you're talking about here, that's that's a pretty major shift from the old paradigm, no? Yeah, Bob, it is a, it is quite a shift from the old paradigm. The old paradigm was one in which patients were diagnosed with HIV, they'd get linked to a clinic that provides HIV care that may take days or weeks or even months sometimes. In the old paradigm of treatment, since our drugs weren't as good, there was a lot more education up front, and we also needed a number of baseline labs before it was really safe to start. But because the medications have gotten much better and easier to tolerate and a little bit harder to develop resistance to, some of those initial concerns are mitigated, and we can go ahead and start on the same day we meet the patient. So this newer paradigm, what's the evidence that supports it? There's a lot of evidence. There's evidence about the benefits directly to the individual patients. So studies like Insight and Temprano, some of the studies done around the world that showed starting antiretroviral therapy earlier rather than waiting for a CD4 count to drop, decreased AIDS-related mortality and overall mortality. It's a benefit to the community at large. So we know from HPTN052, which was a study that really is the hallmark of treatment as prevention. So it, it proved that 
When an individual with HIV has an undetectable viral load, they cannot transmit that virus to others. And so by doing that, by getting more people on therapy more quickly and undetectable, you decrease risk of transmission in the community. The guidelines have all shifted. So the WHO, the DHHS, the IAS guidelines, and even our recent plan in the United States to end the HIV epidemic, they all point to rapid initiation of antiretroviral therapy. And then lastly, there's evidence that we as healthcare professionals play some role in the inequities and in health outcomes with regard to HIV because antiretroviral therapies are prescribed in inequitable ways to racial and ethnic minorities and sexual and gender minorities. And so it's, it's an opportunity for us to follow the science and hopefully mitigate some of those inequities. Here's a question I think a lot of our listeners may have. When a clinician is considering rapid ART, and typically, he or she lacks the laboratory results they would want to have before they offer medication. Tell us how you navigate that part of this practice change. That's a good question, Bob. It's always one of the most difficult parts to navigate. First, we just have to educate clinicians that it's safe to do. There's lots of data that now show the safety that patients don't have increased risk of kidney failure or liver failure or things like that by starting these medicines without baseline laboratory data. And I remind people that you know most of the world and when they're starting antiretroviral therapy, doesn't have this whole host of laboratory data that, that we are often accustomed to in the United States. The regimens that we use when we start rapid ART have been specifically chosen because of the fact that we lack some important laboratory data, like a viral load and like a genotype. And so we're always using a tenofovir-based regimen with either FTC or lamivudine, and that's combined with either dolutegravir, bictegravir, or boosted darunavir. And so those regimens were chosen because we don't need a baseline viral load. We don't need genotypic data at baseline. They cover for hepatitis B, and we're presuming the patient has that. And they also avoid a back of ear because we don't have an HLA B5701 yet. And then, of course, you do need a system in place to get those meds quickly and get a payer source and follow up with the patient. And so all those have to be developed locally, but the data are certainly there for the safety and starting those medications without baseline laboratory data. Well, thank you, doctor, for bringing us this case and for sharing your expertise with us. Let's take a moment now to connect what we've been discussing to our learning objective. Explain when and how to initiate rapid ART. What are the key things our listeners need to know? I think there's a couple of key points to remember. First, the right time to initiate antiretroviral therapy is now. It's today. The day the patient's in front of us, it's an opportunity for them and it's an opportunity for us. And ideally, that's the day of diagnosis, if not as close to that as we can get. It's important to remember this is still a patient-provider decision. So we're not shoving medications down individuals' throats, but for those that are ready to start, we're getting the system out of the way for them. Certain folks may not be ready to start that day, and that's okay, and we need to create the space for them to have that time to make that decision. It's important to select the right three-drug regimen when you're starting rapidly without some of those baseline lab data. And that's a tenofovir-based regimen, backbone with either a second-generation integrase inhibitor or boosted darunavir. And then you have to have a follow-up plan in place to circle back with that patient within a few days, make sure there were no baseline labs that need to be addressed or medication changes that need to be made. And of course, you want to ensure early tolerance of those medications on the part of the patient. Well, thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Jonathan Colasanti from Emory University in just a moment. Hello again, it's Bob Busker with a question about your CME, CEU credits. Do you have all you need? 
because there are credits still available without charge from our recently completed Volume 6 of EHIV Review. Whether you need to know more about switching ART regimens or harm reduction when treating people who inject drugs or reviewing the evidence about weight gain prep and hormone therapy, you'll find it in the EHIV Review Archive. Just go to dkbmed.com. That's Delta Kilo Bravo Med.com. Type EHIV Review in the search box and select the newsletter or podcast that interests you. All our EHIV Review programs are accredited for physicians as well as nurses and are provided without charge to access or to obtain credit. And if you listen to us on iTunes or whichever service you get your podcasts, please review us. Because the more listeners we have, the more programs we can provide. Thank you. And now back to our current podcast. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Colasanti from Emory University and the Grady Health System in Atlanta about rapid ART and how starting treatment at the time of diagnosis can improve HIV management and patient outcomes. And that takes us to our second learning objective, discuss the aspects of the HIV care continuum that may be improved through rapid ART in a variety of populations. With that in mind, if you would please, Dr. Colasanti, Take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. Sure. This time, Bob, I'm going to take you to the the bedside in the hospital. Here we have a 21-year-old woman who was admitted to the hospital with a severe skin and soft tissue infection that was secondary to injection opioid use. In an opt-out HIV screening test at admission, she was positive, and it was confirmed with an antibody test. And so in addition to screening for hepatitis, sexually transmitted infections, and getting a general baseline HIV laboratory panel, we treat her soft tissue infection, and we choose to initiate darunavir, cobicistat, tenofovir, and emtricitabine alongside of buprenorphine for her opioid use disorder. I want to focus for a moment on her opioid use. Many clinicians might be hesitant to prescribe rapid ART for this patient because they're concerned that her addiction is going to interfere with her ability to adhere to her medication. Uh, along those same lines, a similar concern would be a potential lack of follow-up. Will they ever see this patient again after she's initially discharged? My question to you, should clinicians be concerned? Are you concerned about this particular patient? Yes and no. You bring up a great point. She clearly has an addiction, which may make follow-up challenging. Oftentimes with addiction, individuals have challenges with transportation, with food insecurity, with housing instability, all those things that can make following up difficult. That said, there are good data to show that us as clinicians are pretty poor predictors of who's going to be adherent to medication and who's not. And we have really effective medications, and I don't think it's right for us to kind of be the gatekeepers of that. The great thing is we can give this woman an initial 30-day supply of these regimens that we've discussed. And with that 30-day supply and a little bit of education around how resistance develops and how to avoid that, that individual is not going to develop resistance, even if they don't follow up and even if they're not perfect with adherence. And so I think it's important that we give them the benefit of the doubt and engender confidence in a system that so often has slighted individuals with addiction or other struggles in terms of social determinants of health. And also, I think it's important to remember in that context, the medicines aren't going to fix all those other problems that we just mentioned. And so it's important to link her to services that may help her with her addiction, as well as some of the other social determinants of health that may make adherence a challenge for her. Now, that's an interesting perspective, doctor, but has it actually worked in practice? 
It has. And there was a study done by Alicia Metch and her colleagues that looked at this exact scenario and they randomized patients that had substance use disorder and challenges with retention and care to get a variety of interventions. And as a secondary analysis of that project, they looked specifically at patients who were hospitalized when they were randomized in the trial and whether or not they had ART initiated inpatient or not. And when they were able to do that, they truncated linkage to care after hospital discharge from 60 days down to 30 days. That's certainly what I would want for my daughter. And I think it's great evidence for this approach. That approach, how might it work or not work for the patient we've been discussing? This kind of goes back to a question you asked a minute ago, Bob, in terms of what happens if this woman doesn't follow up. There's a great program in New York. It's called the Jumpstart Program. There's an intervention run out of their sexual health clinics. This was an observational study, and they gave patients the choice to go into the Jumpstart arm, which was the rapid ART arm. And they got a package of services that included a patient navigator, a social worker, and day of initiation of antiretroviral therapy. But a key thing that this program put in place that I haven't seen in many other programs is that they tried to link those individuals to HIV care. But if the individual didn't make it into HIV care and came back to the sexual health clinic, they would get ongoing supplies of their antiretrovirals. So they built in a system whereby there was a process in place that patients could get ongoing antiretrovirals until they linked to HIV care, which I think is a wonderful way to keep those meds going which again, are largely non-toxic and hard to develop resistance to until they officially link to care. So your advice to clinicians who might be hesitant to provide rapid ART to a patient with substance use disorder? Just because you might not have the assurance that that individual can get ongoing antiretroviral therapy if they don't link to the clinic. We have lots of data now that individuals that are in rapid start programs get to undetectable quicker. They link to care better. And even if they don't do well in the long run, they don't necessarily develop increased rates of drug resistance. So I still don't think it's a reason to withhold therapy from that individual. We can give them the benefit of the doubt on the front end. We've discussed the benefits of rapid ART for people like our patient who inject drugs. What about other, let's call them special populations? I think rapid ART is a pathway toward equity for access to antiretroviral therapy and achieving the outcomes that we're after, namely achieving sustained viral suppression. And when you think about key populations or or sometimes they're referred to as vulnerable populations, we think about youth, we think about young black men who have sex with men or African-American populations or Latinx populations at large in the United States who oftentimes have lagging indicators in terms of successes with HIV care. And this approach has really, at least in cohort studies, been shown to be effective in all of those across a variety of settings in our clinic in Atlanta, in New Orleans, in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Miami, all across the Southeast where, again, some of those outcomes with regard to viral suppression tend to lag behind. We have really positive data that shows that at least those who start therapy in that regard tend to do just fine in the long run once they're started. So from a bigger picture perspective, what we're really talking about here is a a way to improve the whole process of bringing patients into the HIV care continuum. Uh, My question is, why is there such a focus on this now? Well, I think because the science has really become crystal clear now over the last five to 10 years in terms of the benefits that viral suppression has to the individual with immune recovery, fewer opportunistic infections, fewer deaths. They have a smaller viral reservoir for those who are started in the acute HIV setting and may even make them more likely to develop functional cure in the future. 
There's less inflammation overall, which should also benefit the patient in the long run. And all those downsides to medications that we used to have are, are gone. They're a thing of the past. You combine that with the benefits that U equals U has for the community and how quickly we can get people to that undetectable viral load. And that's why I think it's all come together and really culminated in 2019 when the last administration put forth the ending the HIV epidemic plan to end HIV in America and really put rapid art as a pillar of that plan. Last question, Dr. Colasanti. The core benefits of rapid ART are very clear. Increased entry into care, reduced time to viral suppression. But what do we know about the longer-term metrics of this process change? Yeah, Bob, and I'll spend a minute talking about this because I think it's really important. I mean, it's really the crux of rapid ART, and I think it's important that all of us that are doing it understand what it is and what it does. It's a process improvement step that really definitively improves the early part of the care continuum, linking people to care, getting them on therapy quickly, and getting them virally suppressed quickly. It also seems to have durability for those that go down that pathway. However, what we do lack are definitive randomized control data to say that patients who start ARVs in a rapid art setting have better outcomes than their counterparts who don't in the long run in terms of 24-month retention or 36-month retention or viral suppression. And there was a trial done in Africa that looked at starting antiretroviral therapy in the home when patients were diagnosed in a home testing program versus waiting until they got to clinic. And they saw all those initial care continuum benefits. But when they looked at outcomes at 24 months, there was really no difference between the groups in terms of retention and care and viral suppression. To me, that's a win because there's no harm done and we have the early care continuum benefits, but we can't expect rapid ART alone to result in longer term improvements. We have to put in processes and programs to improve the entire care continuum for patients through their care journey. Thank you, Dr. Colasanti, for bringing us this case. Let's wrap things up by returning to our learning objective. Discuss aspects of the HIV care continuum that may be improved through rapid ART and a variety of populations. What are the key things our listeners should take away from our discussion? I think there's a number of key points that are important to remember. First of all, that rapid ART is associated with improved linkage to care, even among subgroups that we think of as harder to reach, such as substance users. There's cohorts of patients from a variety of populations, whether it's youth or African-Americans or young Black gay men that have demonstrated really great outcomes in terms of rapid antiretroviral therapy. The greatest impact of rapid antiretroviral therapy seems to be on that early part of the care continuum, linkage to care, starting antiretroviral therapy, and achieving viral suppression. And it's important that where those benefits have been seen, those, those shrinking of that early part of the care continuum metrics, we're also seeing declines in new infections because of that combination of rapid antiretroviral therapy and oftentimes pre-exposure prophylaxis kind of together at a community level resulting in decreases in new infections. And then finally, as I've said a number of times, there really is no harm from rapid antiretroviral therapy. And so while it might not in and of itself result in longer-term retention and viral suppression, it definitely doesn't do any harm and has very early benefits. From Emory University and the Grady Health System in Atlanta, Dr. Jonathan Colasante, thank you for joining us for this EHIV Review Podcast. Of course, Bob, it's been my pleasure. Thanks. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. 
To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehivreview.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Janssen, and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med LLC. Thank you for listening.